Section 5 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 6, March 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Julie Burks. The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 6, March 1897. Section 5. The Ivory Bells by James Buckham. My name is Imogene Diller, and I am twenty-five years old. The reader will perhaps understand more readily from this statement the confession I am about to make. Being a woman, I am naturally a believer in dreams. I think I never knew a woman who was entirely free from this mild form of superstition, and being comparatively young, as life is estimated nowadays, I am romantic. I was twenty-two when my heart first began to hunger for sympathy, for appreciation, for affection. How natural, how inevitable is this period in a girl's life history. It is a condition as normal as the unfolding of a bud, and equally natural, I think, are her little, innocent, instinctive, girlish devices for rendering herself beautiful in dress and manner, her love for going into company, there to meet the rank and file of those from whom must be recruited her possible prince. She shines in looks, in thoughts, in words, in actions, with the glow of that hardly acknowledged desire within her breast, the desire for the true manly love which she feels that she can so opulently repay. If the world only knew, it laughs at girls who are dying for unattained love. It would weep could it see into their hearts. So terrible is it to feel youth slipping away, and with it that hope for which, by the decree of God, most women live. It was one day, soon after I had passed my twenty-third birthday, that a terrible thought came to me, the thought that I should be over the hill of youth in a little while, and going down the other side, that the hope I had silently cherished, which I had never as yet considered impossible, might soon be a lessening one. I cannot tell what a flood of depression overwhelmed me. All that day and far into the night, my soul cried out to God for the precious gift without which my life would mean nothing. Among my dreams that night, when at last I slept, there was one that visited me twice and seemed to be, in a vague way, an answer to my passionate prayer. I saw myself standing on a bare hillside, whose slope was black with shadow. In the midst of the gloom I raised my hands, and something white came floating down out of the clouds. It looked like a wreath of snowy flowers, but as it drifted slowly down and settled in my outstretched hands, I saw that it was a necklace of little white bells. I put the bells about my neck and instantly a glorious burst of sunlight illumined the hill, and I awoke. Twice, I say, this dream came to me, once in the middle of the night, and once just before waking in the morning. As I opened my eyes in the real sunlight, the dream seemed so actual and so vivid that I clutched my bosom, thinking to catch the bells before they melted away. As I considered the vision, I said to myself, there was a hint in this dream worth heeding. 
Hitherto I have neglected personal adornment, thinking that love must indeed be blind if he cannot see beyond the surface glitter of that which is foreign even to the physical person. But it may be that love is not blind, only wandering of sight. Does perhaps something crude, glittering, conspicuous catch his eye and draw it whither it may discover the better thing that lies behind? I will see." Every girl knows perfectly well the kind and amount of her own personal attraction. I knew what people called me, what I was. Not exactly pretty, but stately, impressive, a matronly girl of the Dutch Madonna type. Such a type is not generally winsome. It is too quiet. Men will jostle a Madonna who stands between them and a coiffure. Yet if the Madonna could only fascinate and attract them at first sight, as the coiffure does, how much more they would admire and love her. It is all a question of initial fascination. With some such idea eddying through my mind, I went to a famous firm of manufacturing jewelers and gave them a novel commission to make me a necklace of ivory bells. I bade them spare no expense to make the ornament the most exquisite thing that art could devise, no material to be used but the finest, most transparent ivory, the bells to be perfect and complete in every detail, even to the tiny, vibrant tongues, and all united by a chain of polished ivory links. Even if the dream proved in no sense prophetic, I thought, it has given me the idea of an absolutely unique ornament. I shall not be unnoticed when I wear it. Two thousand dollars was the cost of my necklace. I am not wealthy, but I am by no means poor. I could pay the money, and I did. Immediately a new experience came into my life. I became a center of admiration. Hitherto, with other quiet, inconspicuous girls, I had been comparatively unnoticed in company. But from the first occasion, when I appeared wearing my necklace of ivory bells, I was ringed about with admirers, and the most intoxicating part of it was that I really could not determine whether the ivory bells were the sole attraction, or whether they had called out and emphasized some actual personal charm that made me admirable. I do not remember that a word was ever said to me in society about the ornament. Society is too conventionally polite for that. But I wondered, especially when the men thronged about me, whether they were looking at the exquisite workmanship of the bells or at the girl who wore them. It was during this brief season of social triumph that a revelation came to me, which accounted, in large part, for my disquietude of a year past. The prince had come. Indeed, he had been near me for a long time, and I had not known that I loved him. He was a silent man a poet. Some called him a dreamer. He went into society not for pleasure's sake, but that he might study human nature, for the same reason that he went into the lumber camps of the north and the slums of the great cities. The first time he came to me, at the dull tinkling of the ivory bells, I felt an almost overpowering desire to stretch out my strong young arms and sweep from before me all the simpering circle on whose outskirts he stood. Then, for an instant, 
and the only time I can remember until the strange thing happened. He looked into my eyes, and I became as a child before him. Afterwards, as often as he came near me, such a rapturous thrill ran through all my being that I could scarcely keep from crying out. Yet he alone, of all the hovering circle, seemed most interested, not in me, but in the ivory bells. I continually caught him studying them, and the thought maddened me that he, whose love meant all the world to me, admired only the ornament upon my neck. One summer evening there was a grand ball given at an out-of-town villa. He and I were there with a great company of the gayest of the city's gay. As usual, I wore my ivory bells, and as usual, those who admired them, or me, I could not tell which, gathered around me. As the stifling night wore on and dance followed dance, I grew faint and weary, and felt as if I must have a breath of heaven's pure air. As I moved toward the wide-open French windows, from which one could step upon the veranda, the poet crossed my path. He stopped, and I saw that his eyes were fixed upon the ivory bells. Much as I loved him, I could have almost smitten him then. He spoke. "'Are you going out for a breath of fresh air, Mademoiselle Diller? So was I. May I have the honor of accompanying you?' "'The honor. My soul surged within me. I was about to return some stereotypical refusal when the thought came to me, "'Is not this the hour of fate?' Yes, I will prove to myself this night that it is the ivory bells alone he cares for. So I put my hand upon his arm, and together we went out into the night. Oh, that beautiful, soft night! Could a thousand years blot out its memory? The stars twinkling so purely in the blue-black sky, the restful sighing of the trees, the patter of a fountain nearby the music floating out across the shrubbery. Let us go down by the lake, my companion said. There we may rest and enjoy the coolness. Down the terraces we went, arm in arm. There was a trembling between us. I could not tell whether my hand wavered upon his arm or his arm shook under my hand. But when we reached the little artificial lake, I sank upon a bench, and he, standing a little aside, stood before me. Some gaudy lanterns, not far away, cast a faint glow over us. The silence grew oppressive. I felt his eyes upon the ivory bells. Suddenly my spirit rose to the level of its purpose. I started up, withdrawing a little, and snatched the glistening circlet from my neck. The next instant it was flashing in the crystal water of the lake, sinking so slowly that it seemed to hang suspended in the tide, like the golden goblet that the poet saw from the bridge at midnight. Then I looked at my poet, and all of life trembled upon that instant. Oh, gracious heaven! His eyes were fixed, not upon the sinking bauble, but upon my face. Love had passed the crucial test. At that supreme moment, something like rushing darkness came over me, something with roaring wings as of a great bird. I fainted from the awful stress, but even as I sank, I felt my lover's arms encircle me. I have confessed. For me, the world is made new and all things in it. 
my poet smiles as I read him what I have written about the ivory bells. He declares that he never saw them in his life until they flashed from my hand that night into the lake. If he seemed to look upon them, he swears it was because he dared not lift his eyes to the soul that burned in mine. The light had slain him, except it had been of love. End of section 5 End of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 6, March 1897